Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Hello and welcome to episode, I think it's 142 of what most people think. I mean, doing that bonus local elections results special last week has really thrown everything out. I mean, not least doing an extra half hour of talking in a week. I'm not sure that my energy levels have quite recovered from that, of pontificating on things. Uh, we do have a returning guest who's co-hosting today, one of the the friends of the show, uh, the money man of, of what most people think. It's Dominic Frisby. Welcome back to the show, mate. Uh, thank you very much, Jeff. A pleasure to be here. And uh, yeah, the money man. <laughs> the money man. Well, I was I was thinking with you coming back on the show, you know, you were known on the on the circuit for having good tips and stuff like that. Is there a degree to which when people encounter you that you feel like they're just waiting a long enough amount of time before they can ask you for some uh, advice? Yeah, they're, they're with some people. And uh, often people will ask you a question. Uh, uh, often people want you to manage their stock portfolios for them or often people people want to know you know which obscure cryptocurrency to buy and um and and often the, the question they'll ask is, is should i buy bitcoin and then it's mm. and, and i go yes and then they go what even now after the run-up it's had and i go yes and then they go um oh and then they don't want to buy it <laughs> so they were hoping <laughs> i would say no but they, they don't, oh, they yeah, yeah, yeah. They want to be reassured that their inactivity hasn't cost them money. Exactly. Uh, yeah. That's funny, isn't it? People don't ever really ask questions that they actually want the answer to. I suppose in a way it's a bit like, you know when uh, impressionists, I've always thought it's funny when impressionists go on a chat show and the, uh, the, 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 the host is talking to them and you can just tell the old audience again, do the voice. Go on. <laughs> do, do, go on. Yeah, do. do oh, I wonder what Boris Johnson would have to say about that. <laughs> <laughs> And yeah, I guess I guess you sometimes get that with money, or is it more like a kind of doctor thing where people want to show you their fucking hemorrhoids, i.e., go, oh, my property have I bought above the market rate? Is it more like a doctor thing? Yeah, I, I suppose <clears throat> the one I got asked loads is, should I fix my mortgage or should I get a variable rate? I get asked that one loads, mm. and uh, I mean, yeah. I want to ask you that right now. I mean, <laughs> That's the no. question everyone wants to know. Um, I, I, well, at the moment, I, I, like, I remember, do you know Susan Murray? Yes. So yeah. in 2000, it would have been 2007. She's 2000, a comedian, I should yeah, say. She's a, yeah. a known comedian. She once said to me, she bought a flat or a house in 2007, 2008, around about then. And I was convinced the whole world was about to go tits up, as it was. Mm. And she said, should I get a fixed mortgage or a variable rate? And because I was convinced everything was about to go tits up, I said fix your mortgage. 
And I think I might have said fix it for as long as possible. <laughs> oh, was that when they were about 6.7 or something like yeah, that? 6. It was. 7, 5. It was. And then, of course, they, they slashed mortgages and slashed interest rates to print out all the money. And she never forgave me. And, Fair you know, she never stops. Even now, she's trolling me on social media. Like, we're good friends, <laughs> but she'll still troll me going, you're, you don't know what you're talking about. You cost me more money than anyone ever. And, like, so I, I really don't like giving out advice because um, inevitably you get stuff wrong and then you're never forgiven. And so advice is, is worth what you pay for it. You know, and I think also it's very easy to forget the bubbles that we live in at that time. You know, even now, you know, with the negativity about the economy, which we will get to later. But things do change and it's very hard sometimes to see outside of exactly what's happening now. I was lucky in the the, the credit crunch, um, which I talk about in the book as probably my favourite economic catastrophe of all time, in terms of the fact that, like a few comics, I was on a, I was on a, a tracker mortgage. Do those even still exist? Um yeah, you must have made out like a bandit. Yeah, the tracker, I would call that a variable rate. Oh, so it went mm. up and down as interest rates went up and down. Yeah, so there was an offset one, which was, I don't know if they're that popular anymore, but where everything you have in the bank is offset. So you have an interest only, but I mean, this is this is how middle-aged, how, how middle-aged this podcast is. We've gone straight in with the mortgage chat. So the meagre amount of money I had in the bank was offset against the huge amount that I owed. But then suddenly it went down to, it, you, it literally, yeah. So my mortgage payments halved, and then throw in the fact that the uh, the price of crude oil absolutely collapsed, and and then weirdly in the comedy game, one of the big chains went down, but then re-emerged at the same time as the other one had carried on going. That was best time of my life, mate. Most disposable income I've ever had. Ah, uh, well, yeah. They still owe me two grand, that bloody comedy club that went bust. (laughs) Comedians never forget money that they're owed. Um, What have you been, I mean, of course, I have to do the local radio thing now of presuming that for some reason, whenever they speak to a comedian, that gigs have only just started happening. So, Dominic, so you must be back out gigging. What are audiences like? And you're thinking, well, I was doing that in 2020, mate. Yeah, well... So what's the question? <laughs> so the question is, I guess, how is to how are gigs right now that you're doing? How are you finding the mood uh, of audiences? Because I think that a lot of comedians are reporting vast differences compared to pre-pandemic behaviour. Um, you've got to be even more careful what you say than before. Lynch mm. mobs are even more um, uh, in, in some Can't say lynch night. mobs, mate. Yeah. Can't say lynch mobs. You can't even say lynch mobs anymore, exactly. <laughs> you have to say witch hunts. And yeah. um, Ooh, a bit <laughs> offensive to that. the Wicca community, you have, mate. You have to say they, them hunts or whatever it is. Anyway, <laughs> the, um, the, the, my experience was that in that sort of time when it opened up, when it, in the first time when it opened up, when everyone was, you know, had to sit two metres apart and a normal comedy mm. club that took 250 people could only have 60 and all that kind of stuff. Um, there was a huge relief to be doing a gig, but it was all a bit... It was, The atmosphere was a bit thin and artificial, basically, because mm. the clubs weren't as full. And then when stuff opened up, whenever it was in the autumn, I'm just thinking sort of October, November, December, I can't really get my dates lined up. I just mm. thought gigs were excellent, as good a, good a gig as... Yeah, you know, I've, as I've ever had, and it was partly the relief of doing stuff, and also there was the exhilaration of you were doing all your new stuff you'd written in the pandemic, and I, I, I think you know people who talk about cocaine being an incredible high. Well, you should try the the high you get off doing a new joke and it working. I, I think that's mm. probably the biggest high there is in life, almost. 
And so there was that too, you know, loads of new material, it all working. So that kind of period up to Christmas was fantastic. And then my experience in the last couple of months is that I don't know if it's, you know, rising energy bills, cost of living crisis and all of that, but numbers are a bit thin on the ground compared to what they mm. were. And, and there's just, I don't know, there's something in the air and a lot of trepidation, maybe, you know, a lot of comics, are, 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 it's costing them twice as much to get to the gig. The there's to perform to two thirds of as many people, the, uh, mm. the, um, promoters, uh, um, struggling to make to, to to balance the books and so numbers are a bit down and it all feels a bit lacking in energy well I would say that you know from the touring point of view that to get to the numbers that I was doing in the autumn of last year has taken I mean the gigs do get there in the end but the work it's taken in terms of pushing and hustling has been so much more because there's two things one is that people are sort of thinking yeah, I've had loads of tickets for stuff that just stayed pinned up on the notice board and then I've got COVID. So people are buying later. Yeah. Uh, and also, you know, people are just, I suppose, questioning uh, costs to a point. So, you know, like, I mean, on that note, you know, next week I'm in Oxford and Huntingdon. These were ones that were added late. But yeah, the, the numbers have been good, but my God, I've had to like get on the radio and tweet and do, I mean, God, yeah, working, okay. working, Dom. I've had yeah, to work, well, get that's... this, I've had to promote <laughs> to make people come to my gigs. It's fucked yeah. up. I I, I I sympathize, Jeff. It's a hard life. But I, I, I've done two solo shows and the first one was in November. Um, you know, it was like a really good show, me singing with the band and everything, with a full mm. band. And the first one we did in November is at the backyard. It just sold out in about two weeks, uh, 250 yeah. people full. And then we did another one last month and we only got to 150. You know, so it was it was hard, much harder. Harder, but look, we know in the world of comedy, 150, and both having done the Edinburgh Festival, that 150 people is is not bad at all. And 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 on that note, um, I've announced in the last couple of days that I am going up to the Edinburgh Festival, and I'm going to do a run of this current tour show. Obviously, I'll have given it a once over. I've given it a glow up to use yeah. words that the kids will understand. Uh, but the, the the funny thing was there was that clip going around yesterday. I don't know if you saw it of um, at the EU Commission Government Council or whatever the fuck it is. What with the uh, Galact- the interactive dancing or whatever it's called. Yeah, yeah. So they were doing this kind of weird <laughs> narrative dancing, and I should have. I thought I should be making a joke about the eu here but all it just made me think of was getting flyered by some amdram's private sixth form college twats on the royal mile i i just thought interpretive dance was an 80s thing and i'm just delighted to see this still going on (laughs) well you you know look our european friends they have so many strengths i would always say that it is amazing that that musically like if you look at Britain in terms of the music that we produce, like rock and roll band, rock and roll, sound like a fucking 60-year-old there. But, you know, now with the grime scene in the UK, and I know that France has a bit of a hip-hop scene and stuff like that, but we really, if we underperform on food, we overperform on music and comedy. My God. I mean, that should be what we're withholding in the next trade war, right? Uh, absolutely. And and I'm going to take issue with you there, Jeff Norcott. I'm going to argue with you, and I'm going to defend British food. And I will say that in the 70s, it was a bit crap. But now I think it is awesome. Like, you know, you, you look at the variety of foods you get in London mm. and the, the quality of the ingredients and, the, and the, the, the quality of the taste. I think British food is pretty darn good. Okay, let's throw in now, let's throw in the coefficient of how much it costs. 
Well, that's and, that's a that's another. I can remember when a steak was um, a normal meal would be a fiver. Do you mean this would be back in the noughties when you were on tour or whatever? You get a normal meal yeah. for a fi- five or maybe six quid, and then but if you had a steak, it would be like eight or nine quid. And now it's over two. Like now, you it's hard to get a steak for less than fifteen quid. Often it's more than twenty quid. It's a fiver for the peppercorn sauce now, Dom. Yeah, a well, exactly. The... You got to pay two pounds fifty for the peppercorn sauce. <laughs> I've just done. I've just hired a handyman to do some jobs for me, and he mm. wants two hundred and fifty quid a day. Which, you know, at first I was like, "What the fuck?" It used to be a hundred quid a day. Yeah. And I was going to this day says, "You know what? What?" And and he was just going, "That's that's what it is." And but yeah. I do remember when you could hire, you know, a bloke for a hundred quid. And those well, days are- this is Brexit, mate. This is the thing we voted for, and now it's slapping us in the face. Where some of the guys Brexit. that would do it for a hundred quid, but in a way, in a positive way, this is part of levelling up, isn't it? People doing manual trades, partly because of the pandemic, we've realised that you know maybe being a, an outreach manager for Oliver fucking Bonas isn't as important as someone that can build and fix things. Maybe we're just putting value on the things that really matter. Yeah, well, uh, that's certainly true. And and thirty years of globalization and importing cheap foreign labour drove down wages, increased and caused huge inequality. Yes, yes, yes. But I'm still a believer in one hundred quid cash in hand. And yeah. um, and the so I, I hear that argument, but and 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 that that it dro- globalization drove down wages. And and it was the you know the the work in, the, it doesn't matter if they're English working class or French working class whatever working class around the world um, mm. has just seen their their incomes on a relative basis fall apart and 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 that's one of the reasons why there's so much you know underlying anger but Brexit didn't cause inflation money printing did. I mean, this, this is, we are now recording an episode of Grumpy Old Men, but um, hotel prices in city centres are fucking ridiculous at the moment. I, I got caught uh, with the trains the other day and I thought, I'll do my usual trick at King's Cross. There's a, there's a few travel lodges there. I'll pay a hundred quid. I'll stop over. And then it's one of the most minging, I, I don't mind a travel lodge, but it's like 189 quid on a Wednesday. You're quitting. You're, you're quitting. I was I was quitting. <laughs> that sounds like a new a new podcast for you. You're quitting with it's a good Dominic Frisbee. It? It's not bad yeah, at yeah. all. Dominic um, goes and buys stuff and is alarmed at how much it costs. <laughs> yeah, I want to come back to this interpretive dance of the EU very quickly. Do you, like when I first saw that, I thought they had like walked into the you know it was like uh, Extinction Rebellion or something like that. They they'd like. Mm you know, broken into the parliament and were doing their interpretive dance. But from what I gather, it was like somebody was paying for them to do that. Presumably it was subsidy. It was subsidising because I don't think art like that survives without subsidy because people don't want to see it. Which is incredible. uh, I did think, oh, these just stop oil pricks are at it again. Um, But no, no, it was, uh, it it didn't even look that good. Do you know what I mean? They were just like... We're moving, we're dancing, we're... I mean, it's, it sort of looked like Eurovision in the 70s. Um, speaking of the 70s, just a quick t- catch-up on the tour shows last week. I went to Saffron Walden. I don't know why that's speaking of the 70s. But there was a Patreon there, Ed Storer, who was sitting in the front row. And Ed, if I'd have known you were a Patreon, I wouldn't have gone in quite so hard. So maybe we need a system for patrons where they can just hold up a, a privilege card. A P, P for privilege, Patreon privilege. Uh, and that was a very fun gig. Swindon on the Friday 
I mean, I don't know, they were so euphoric. I guess living in Swindon, good things happening. You know, you're living in Swindon, there's an outsider. People probably don't visit much. That gig was off the chart good. And then I did Ipswich on Saturday night. And if anybody came to the tour show in Norwich uh, last on the last leg, or earlier this year actually, there was a woman, I wouldn't say she heckled with me, but I, I would more say, and you'll be familiar with this, Tom, is that she mistook it for a conversation. Do you know what I mean by that? Yeah, all the time. Uh, all the time, and uh, sometimes it can be quite amusing, uh, and uh, other times it can be rather worrying, particularly yeah. when the uh, person in the front row is telling you about their uh, uh, political views. Well, she stood up and she also, she said she had a joke for me, a Milton Jones joke, and I thought, this is how my tour's going, is that people are going, right, this cunt's dying on his ass. I need to bust him with a Milton Jones joke. But she sort of stood up and said it like she was at assembly, and I kind of thought... The audience was quite nice and the audience gave her a round of applause. But, you know, as a comic, there's that feeling where you're going, you have no idea what you're encouraging here. Like, you're thinking, oh, that applause will just say, thanks, love, but don't do it again. But what she's thinking is, I've got, I could I could do this for a living. Yeah. Uh, we got some new patrons. Um, we got... Uh, so I had another conversation with somebody about putting advertising on and I'm still not doing it. Obviously, I would never with the patrons. You always get the podcast ad free and I discussed, you know, whether there was a way of doing that. But then they start, and this isn't the edgiest fucking podcast in the world, but then they started saying, oh, maybe you could slightly reposition it politically. And then they sort of thumbed their nose at a couple of guests I'd had previously. So we continue. We continue being one of the few podcasts that does all right, that doesn't have people interrupting to send send you fucking robot sex machines or whatever. Have you been, um, been approached by advertisers? Uh, yeah, a couple of times. Yeah, which, yeah. Are you and, allowed and, to say which brands? I'd rather not, because no, not advertisers, but by a platform which does the advertising. Um, oh, I so I mean, I I fucking like. I always think there's certain brands like KFC, Weatherspoons. I, I I'm the guy that actually buys their stuff, but of course, when these national brands do advertising, they'll have some fun, funky young sexy people that wouldn't go near their brand, right? But they yeah, would never show the likes be- of me. <laughs> I'm I'm all for Weatherspoons. I'm I i didn't see you as a KFC man. I did you eat lots of KFC? Oh, it's terribly bad love for you, it. all that seed oil. Yeah, no, it's horrible, but I love it. I okay. love it. It's it's a little treat on the road. The one thing I would say about KFC is I have um disciplined myself down to just a two piece chicken meal. So it weighs in at about seven hundred and twenty calories. Not much actually, but I just it sort of ticks that box in my mind where I've had the eleven herbs and spices. Oh, it's okay. um, it's an it's an addiction, mate. But the point is, I suppose, is that a brand, this is the thing with modern brands, is they'll never show you the people that actually fucking eat their food. <laughs> when it comes to KFC, in fairness to them, what they really don't want, I guess, is a tired middle-aged man sadly eating a two-piece chicken meal on his own at motorway services. I guess, in fairness to them, that's not going to sell much chicken. Uh, we got new patrons, so as ever, we, we, we say their names and we kind of speculate on who they might be. Uh, we've got Richard Davey. Thank you for joining up, mate. I mean, you just sound like the CEO of something, don't you? Richard Davey. You just hear that there's merger or takeover talks, and we'll hear that the CFO, maybe he's the chief financial officer, Richard Davey, and just be some fucking robot that comes out and talks about optimizations and banks 600 grand for a failing business. But he also has a rakish streak. He has does have Richard Davey, Richard Davey. And then the whole merger falls apart because Richard Davey, turns out, was a bit Richard Hansy. And, uh, <laughs> can we say ha- Hansy now? Does that minimise? No, that's yeah, up you, there with you, lynch mobs. 
Yeah, you can't minimise. It's really very minimising, very minimising. We've also got a, a, a lady who just, um, well, look, I'm, I'm presuming it's a lady who identifies as Vix, uh, V-I-X. So we're going to presume that Vix works in a in a kind of establishment where she shouldn't be listening to the filth that I peddle. So what kind of job would that be? Are we thinking primary school teacher? Are we thinking academic institution? Is she, is she, does she work in admin for The Guardian, but she's secretly really right wing? She might just be quite sort of chummy and matey. And so Vix, mm. you know what I mean? So Vix, like one of the last, I, I think she could be in a hockey team. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. She likes a bit of rough and tumble. Yeah. I mean, that sounds fucking awful, doesn't it? What am I getting out there? I mean. That's, just, just, that's where it all went, all went wrong with her and Richard Davey. <laughs> Uh, we've also got another lady. There was a few uh, female um, patrons. I always said this. Nurse. It's a bit I think like she's a pa- nurse. I think Vix is a nurse. Vix is a nurse, a right-wing nurse. There's another sitcom for you. A nurse um, who's the- disillusioned with the NHS and doesn't think it's as good as it could be, but don't speak out. There's pl- there's genuinely plenty of them. They email they email me. <laughs> um, we've also got Stephanie O'Kane, which I'm sorry, that is hands down a UFC fighter. I don't know why. Stephanie O'Kane, she's probably got... She's probably got a nickname that plays on the O, like Stephanie, oh dear, you're in trouble, Kane. And she's Irish and she plays up to several negative stereotypes there, but it works out for her commercially. I think she's Irish landed gentry. Stephanie or Kane, one of the you know, She owns family. like Waterford. <laughs> uh, we also got domain talking points. So picking up on the bonus episode last week, I spoke about the Amber Heard Johnny Depp trial and David Domain, our super patron. Uh, I, I basically said that it kind of shines in a light in an area that doesn't really get much attention, which is kind of it's not toxic femininity because I think sometimes it's a bit lazy to apply these things. But that also men can be in relationships with women that aren't the nicest. And um, David, I mean, it's amazing you have to say this like it's a surprising thing. But um, he's, uh, David Domain asked the question, will Amber Heard's treatment towards Johnny Depp lead to a Me Poo movement? I don't know if you meant to put Me Poo uh, amongst men. I don't think the problem with men is when and this is as somebody who is sympathetic to male mental health issues, when we try and go, but what about us? The very manly part of me kicks in and goes, stop fucking whining. <laughs> um, and, and meninism and words like that are all a bit lame. I, I don't I don't know if it will lead to, to a, a sort of counterpoint, because Me Too was obviously about sexual har- harassment. This is about domestic and so- psychological abuse. But I don't think it's any bad thing, is it, Dom, to to point out that sometimes in relationships, women can be arseholes too. Well, a lot of the ones who've been out with me have been that. <laughs> I didn't like to say. I mean, I was funnelling heavily towards that. But uh, um, So there's a thank you and a fuck you. You can take one of these or both of these, anything that's on your mind. A bit of gratitude and a bit of bile. Thank you to everyone who subscribes to my Substack newsletter. Nice. And I'm going to say fuck you to the markets. To the markets. Okay, first up, obviously, it's a good point to promote your Substack. Is Substack like articles and stuff? So It's basically a blogging platform and a podcasting platform. Oh, okay. And where can people, for, do people just go on Substack, search Dominic Frisbee? Well, yeah, mine is, is Frisbee, F-R-I-S-B-Y, um, means village of the Frisian people, if you care. Frisbee.substack, as in the cows, where the cows come from. Frisbee, yeah. we were we were Viking invaders, but the Danes get all the credit and the Norwegians, and <laughs> nobody talks about the role of the Frisians in raping and pillaging. Um, the 
<laughs> you want to claim back that history, I want, right? I want some... We did some of that too. Yeah. Um, so it's frisbee.substack.com. And I have to say, as a sort of fellow uh, content producer, I would urge you to investigate Substack. It's a really, really good platform for podcasting, video casting, and and um, blogs. And I think it's going to really hurt the newspaper industry because let's just say, you know, you only buy The Guardian because you like Owen Jones or you only buy The mm. Guardian because you like Barney Rooney or whoever the writer is. And um, maybe Owen Jones isn't the best example given the listenership. But anyway, the if Owen Jones starts putting his, his articles on Substack, then you don't need to buy The Guardian anymore. Oh, it's true. If old John George Monbiot, or whatever his yeah. name is, if he if he goes super kind of like, you know, because he could he could go off the grid at any point, or if you if Giles Corrin suddenly goes, you know what, I'm sick of having pylons. I'll fucking do it myself on Substack. Well, exactly. There, I mean, there are people who only buy papers for specific writers, and if those writers just start using Substack, and it's it's a really good, it's a it's a really good um, payment model for you know, content created because amount of content mm. I've created on the internet that's just earned me nothing. And mm. you, you, you do it because you want to get noticed and, and I like doing it and I'm probably quite creative, but it's, it's nice to be paid. So it's a really good model. And, and, but, you know, I would urge your listeners if they don't, if they've got writers who they like to look them up on Substack and follow them. There's loads of free content on there, free podcasts, and I would urge you if you're a content creator to to start putting stuff on there as well because it's it's a, just a terrific platform. But anyway, frisbee.substack.com is is mine, and it's basically it's mostly market based commentary. Um, but I, I put a sort of philosophical thought piece up on a, on a Sunday and a market commentary up during the week. And then I do stock tips for paid subscribers. OK, right. Uh, we've had a good old chat there. We're a bit late to the first subject, but let's get into it and talk about Keir Starmer, Informer. It's all got a bit weird. Okay, so just to recap, uh, Durham Police initially they investigated this beer beer gate thing in Durham, and uh, they said there was nothing there to investigate. And then, depending on how you look at it, the non-dom scummy right-wing press have kept on banging on about it in a way that they didn't even mention Partygate. I mean, they ba- barely mentioned that across the board for six fucking months. And then uh, it, it does seem like new evidence has come to light, and Durham Police said after the local elections that they are going to um, they're going to investigate because there's new Evidence, right? Uh, and Starmer, who has you know probably got saddle sore from riding a very fucking high horse for a long time, uh, is in a spot for now and has said that he's going to resign if he gets uh, a fixed penalty notice. So, Dom, the question I ask is, do you think he's only pledging uh, to resign because he's confident that he won't get that fine? Yeah, well, this is the story that's emerged overnight is that Durham police don't do retrospective fines. So he made the pronoun and the accusation is that he made the uh, 
bold proclamation, knowing that full well. So it actually wasn't nearly as bold and risky as it looked like. So, yeah, people are saying uh, an honest, integral... This has been the spin from Labour. They've clearly sat and thought, well, we're not going to get fined. Let's parlay this uh, politically. And they go, well, he's a real man of integrity. Well, integrity would would involve some jeopardy or possibility of a thing actually happening. What I do find funny was... Do you think they knew that? Well, it's not that, but it's not that complicated a bit of information because he said, "Oh, he's pulled out of speaking engagements. He's gone to ground with his legal team." If the simple thing that's guiding this uh, strategy is that they don't do retrospective fines, you can fucking Google that. <laughs> you don't need to lock down in the strategy bunker with your team. If that is, if that is it, I would say that the fact that Angela fucking Rayner. If she is saying that she'll resign too, I would say that they've got pretty much 98% confidence that they're not going to get a fine. But what may still be determined is that he broke the rules, right? Well, I, I just hope, I hope the bloke who's doing the, the, uh, doing the inspection or whatever it is, the investigation at Durham Police is just a rabid right winger and uh, decides to break with all the convention of Durham Police and issue a retrospective fine just to get rid of the head of the Labour Party would be very well then, But then it would be, then he'd get doxxed and then we'd be seeing, oh, it does seem that in 2002... Or uh, he did a post saying, or when Thatcher died, he said a post. He sent a post uh, with a crying emoji. So can we really trust this man? This is all that happens: is we go down the <laughs> rabbit hole of of who we can trust. Then we'll find out that the guy that doxed him actually has shares in the Independent, and then we'll find out the guy that doxed that guy writes for Breitbart. Um, it's basically, I think, because people have a real difficulty accepting that the horse that they backed was not the right horse or was a flawed horse or was a bit of a hypocritical horse. Um, but I think it could still harm him if rules were broken. And I wonder if from the general public's point of view, is, look, my view is I, I didn't ever really gave that much of a fuck about uh, um, that in particular. The fact that there was a culture of it as number 10 showed a lack of judgment. But as the Starmer thing's gone on, I thought, I do think that it was a sociable event. I do. And I think that he has lied a bit about it. And and honestly, none of that would bother me either if he hadn't done the big grandstanding in the Commons where, uh, I've got a story here. This is about a person. At a host- you know, I can I say one thing, Tom? Actually, just, just breaking out. Can we do away with the singular stories of constituents and these these uh, hand-wringing tales of hardship. Because I do feel that they've jumped the shark a bit. There was one about Elsie, which became the biggest story coming out of Boris Johnson's interview with Susanna Reid. And I know people say I'm being heartless, but I don't care. And then, and this is where I think they jumped the shark, there was a woman who went viral on LBC who was claiming she was getting by on eating one meal a week. I'm calling bollocks. I'm calling bollocks. Because you just, you know, you can go and buy a load of vegetables and cook a very wholesome, nutritious vegetable soup for less than a quid. So I'm calling bollocks. Yeah, I just think that, and and, and it's become a culture, isn't it? Like it, it started with Starmer at Partygate. Can I, can I just tell the Prime Minister about somebody who wrote to me? And now I, I think that's the point is when you're, when you've got a national discourse or you're trying to govern, you have to deal in, in broad sweeps. There's so many really stupid, petty laws, and we do have major mission creep by the state. And and I just hope all those who, who make the laws as a result of all this and set the rules and make the regulations will think a lot harder before they start imposing such yeah. draconian restrictions on people if the, the very policy makers themselves are unable to abide by their own laws they set and if they all get found out and lose their jobs over it well good and i hope this same kind of 
lawmaking doesn't go on in the future. I'd like to see much more voluntarist approach. So that's one thing. But I also think this is just, there's really big shit going on in the world that needs proper leadership and it needs proper thought. And now, like, this new thing is, oh, if you go to Ukraine, it makes you look really rugged and popular. So now every leader in the world is going to Ukraine for the photo opportunities. And it's, the politics seem to be populated by people who are so good at talking a game and able to you know get to the top by not fucking up but we badly need leaders who are bigger than this and there just seems to be a total absence of them in western politics i mean it's almost like this is the terrible thing is that going to ukraine it's almost become insta content it's exactly what it is <laughs> it's great content and they, they've probably got a little whatsapp group with friendly politicians going just by the way guys uh went to kiev and um yeah, mad, mad growth on the follower numbers. It's, it's the new mad. being photographed with an African baby. It's the new one of that. <laughs> By the way, have you ever? I don't know if it's um, the. I don't know if the account's been taken down. Of course, we got now the libs of TikTok, which kind of exposes sort of. Uh, it's still there. Signaling. It got taken down, but I saw it yesterday because I saw something they posted. But before that, and this is a much funnier, probably light-hearted account, was the Humanitarians of Tinder. And all it was was, <laughs> this is so funny, and, and thank me, listener, for this gift. If it's still there, go on, Humanitarians of Tinder, and all it is is middle-class people who want to date, but their profiles are basically them going to Africa and helping dig out a well and posing with kids from around the way. And it's the best one I found was there was a guy there, and he was holding this kid. I think it was in Malawi. He was holding this baby in his hand. But he posed a photo so his giant right bicep got full exposure. <laughs> it was one of the most sickening, morally and physically narcissistic things that I've ever seen, yeah. I'll tell you, can I just tell you something about Tinder, right? I I was on Tinder a few years ago and um, I had made a bit of money. So I had a really nice Mercedes convertible car. And I had also been like fasting and working out. So I was um, in reasonable. Surviving on one meal a week, mate. Yeah, I was in reasonable. Under this Tory government. And I put um, like, you know, three or four pictures up, whatever you put up. And then I put a picture of a photo of me in the car. And suddenly, loads and loads of, um, I got loads and loads more, what do you call it, swipe rights, messages and all that. And then as an experiment, I put the, I then put a photo of me uh, on the beach uh, on holiday one time coming out of the sea. And I thought I looked a bit like Burt Lancaster, you know, coming in, in from here to eternity. I thought I looked good. And immediately my uh, <laughs> likes just fell off a total cliff and nobody was interested. So the message to blokes is if you can get a picture of yourself in a flashy car, do it. But don't take a picture of you with your top off. And, and also I understand that on dating apps that, that height, there's a lot of height queens out there. So women that just say won't date anybody under six foot. You know, in sperm banks, the most sought after question ahead of... Uh, before race, before intellect, before anything is height so over six foot. It's amazing. It's like the but, most. But I mean, it's, it's just. But it's women being pragmatic, isn't it? Because we do know that in life, I mean, there's a, there's a. Isn't it true that quite a lot? Well, world leaders tend to be either very tall or very short. They, you don't get many, very many five foot niners out there. <laughs> Probably not. But there's a definite. You know, if you look at the great dictators, you know, Hitler. Um, uh, Napoleon, there was a lot of short guys. Putin, apparently Putin has like five-inch wedges in his shoes. That's why he walks so funny, because he's, yeah. he's tiny. <laughs> also got foot cancer, probably. Oh, dear. Um, <laughs> Sorry, Dad. Just... <laughs> what? 
most people think. Just a quick roundup on, on the local elections here. There's a couple of things. I had this guy on Twitter, and I don't like to give him oxygen, but this guy. So I've been sort of criticising the Tories for a lot this year, and I've you know I've said things about Boris that I probably won't vote for them again while he's leader. I didn't vote for them in these local elections, which I included in this podcast. So I'd say that that was fairly not pro-Tory. But I did think that the story of the night for me at the time I did it was when I, when I did it, the Tories had done sort of badly in England, but Labour really hadn't made that much progress, right? But they'd won these flagship London Borough Councils. So I was sort of saying it was it was at best a mixed night for Labour. I mean, it, it got went on to get a lot worse for Labour in England. They then lost three councils in, in London. So it actually came out flat in London. And I don't know if you know this, but their net gain of councillors in England... Right. This is this is anyone anyone other than Corbyn would be twenty points ahead. Labour. How many? I guess. Do you know, Dom? How many? I, I haven't followed it at all, Jeff. So I'm really just quite just interested. have a guess. A, a number. Obviously, I've loaded the base. So how many? Here, how many a, councils are there in the country? Oh, see, I forgot you're good at maths. Um, it was twenty-two. They gained twenty-two councillors. Uh, that's, that's, I think that's like less than one percent increase terrible. on when I was going to guess. 20, it is terrible, by the way, but 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 only blindly. Well, and all, you know, and I know that people will say, well, they did better in Scotland, but a lot of that is down to Anas Sawa, who's proved very popular. They did well in Wales. And again, Mark Drakeford is basically the Prime Minister of Wales since COVID. You know, it turns out that the guy that sort of stops everyone having fun was the, the kind of, uh, kind of um, fun police dictator Wales was waiting for. I hope for. they find a picture of him having had a pint at a party. Oh, my God. How good would that be? Not just that, but like at a phone party or something ridiculously tactile where you can't do... Like and then later on he was playing naked twister with like uh, some teenagers. Anyway, I'd like, probably. So what? So who won all the seats then? <laughs> who won all the seats? The Lib Dems won won the majority of the seats in England. I mean, they won. Uh, I think in the end it was about ten times as many seats as Labour. Uh, Greens did pretty well, but there's a, clearly an issue for the Tories in England in the South is that they've gone into this area where the t- Tories were all north and now we're very very conservative and we think like normal folk, and then uh, the, the South have gone all right fuck you you know we we'll vote for the Lib Dems so there's a rebalancing job for them but they are in power they know they're the levers of power to to improve things by the next election. But meanwhile, Labour, that's just... It's, it, the only reason people vote Tory is because they're the least bad option. It's not because they're good. It's oh, yeah. It's because they're the least bad. Yes. No, I agree. A democracy is a choice between the least shit of two options. And I think that what happened in this election, particularly in England, was people looked at Labour and the Tories and, and neither of them had what you call a good night. So I drew attention to this. And then this guy fucking on Twitter, he goes in like, oh, he's laughably biased. And he's, I, I had a quick check of his timeline and literally all he ever shares is anti-government stuff. And um, But I stand by what I said. I think they had a shit night in England. And actually, after I recorded... Um, after I recorded the episode, I think it got steadily worse. I think Beergate might even, there'll be some in the Labour Party that will think, is this a fucking sliding doors moment where we could get rid of your old Chris Starbuck, the guy that doesn't inspire anybody other than middle-aged men on Twitter. Is he, um, he's not popular within the party, is he? Well, the thing is, is you know, there's been a lot of talk about misleading and, and, and how honest politicians are with the public. And he, he sort of campaigned to be leader with the membership on one level and then he stepped away from it all. But you have had the rise now of these Keir Starmer fans that 
ironically, have got to this level of moral certainty about Keir Starmer. I wouldn't say it's the same as Corbyn. I don't think Starmer, Starmer has anything like the toxic legacy of Corbyn. But they literally won't hear a word against the guy. All I'm saying is, I don't think he can lead them to success in England. I just don't think he's the guy. And whether or not it is Andy Burnham, they somehow find a way of getting him in, or whether or not it's Angela Rayner, you know, who's a bit of fucking putting right up fucking Tories, or whether it's Wes Streeting, who's a bit inexperienced, but a very good politician... And, and it's amazing how angry that makes them, despite all the evidence suggests that he hasn't really made headway. And just a quick one. I know that you, you know a fair bit about uh, Irish politics. You're dating a lady from Ireland, or is it the north? Or She's from, from the south, Kilkenny. So is it from our bit? Yeah, is it no, from, from our bit? their bit, the bit we lost. <laughs> There's a way again, let us. Uh, but the result in Northern Ireland, so this was interesting. I don't know how much you're across this, but Sinn Féin, uh, it was portrayed in the press as basically Sinn Féin have kind of like, you know, carried all before them and the, you know, a united Ireland is now like weeks away. And then when you dug down into the figures, actually Sinn Féin's number of, of uh, seats uh, stayed static. It was exactly the same as last time. And what happened to the DUP vote or the unionist vote rather uh, was that it just split. Uh, and it, and do we sometimes think, I, I guess because there's this anti-Brexit lobby that basically want evidence that Brexit has caused the fourth horseman of the apocalypse. But I just think that the demographics in, you know, in, whenever they do polls for should there be a border poll in Northern Ireland, people don't realise how the numbers are still against it, right? Yeah, they are. I think one reason, another reason the unionists didn't get that many votes is their uh, their they're pretty right as well as the protestant thing they're pretty right wing they're very very conservative about things like abortion and uh, a lot of stuff and and so they don't attract the sort of liberal protestant youth mm. liberal protestant youth sounds like a great indie band it does it? man i'm gonna see them <laughs> we are liberal protestant youth and we're okay with stuff <laughs> Um, just to say hello to a couple more patrons here, we've got Phil Williams. Aren't you a, de- a, yeah, a, a presenter Radio. on Five Live? Times Radio. Oh, do, go on, do the voice. Uh, Times Radio with Jeff Norcott. Um, Sam Imber. We've got a guy called Sam Imber. What an incredible name. You just sound like Sam. You sound like one of those, you know those cute little lads with a, just an acoustic guitar? Like he's like a, better, like a good-looking version of Ed Sheeran. Sam Imber, you just find out suddenly this prick has got 40 billion views yeah. on YouTube. He's in Mumford and Sons. <laughs> yeah, well, they need a replacement after one guy dared to speak his mind, but that's another story. Uh, as I say, uh, I am going up to the Edinburgh Festival. I'm going to be up there the 14th to the 28th of August. I'm going to be on at 5pm because why? I know my audience. I know how old some of you are. You're like that, wouldn't you? You go, oh, we could do that. We could still get dinner afterwards and we can be in bed in time for match of the day. <laughs> Uh, and, and there's tour shows left. I'm in uh, this week. I'm in Oxford on Friday. I'm in Huntingdon on Saturday. Then next week I'm in Scotland. I'm in Glasgow on the Thursday, and then I'm in somewhere called Melrose, which is one of those I believe we exists when I get there places, which is a border town. Uh, so I'd love to see you there. And of course, if you are one of these people that is amazed, quite frankly, that any working class people are still voting Conservative, my book Where Did I Go Right uh, is still available in paperback and all other formats. Uh, obviously, Dom, you've got books out yourself are they still people can still go on amazon and buy those yeah yeah you can buy all my books on amazon they're all really good and uh you should read all three of them immediately if you're interested in if you're interested in history my last book daylight robbery 
uh, is looking at the whole of human history through the perspective of taxation and making the argument that taxation has defined human history. And it will give you a really new and interesting slant on the way the world works. And I think you will be rewarded if you read it. And also, I think the last time you and you spoke to us about, was it about an ancient tax? Was it the window tax, the bedroom tax or something? Oh, yeah, the well, window anyway, tax, yeah. People loved that, and a lot of people bought the book afterwards. So I would highly oh, recommend oh, all you. those. Yep, I would highly recommend all those books. Okay, uh, let's talk about money. So just first up, just quickly on a political level, obviously things are tough for a lot of people. What can or should a government do right now to ease the burden? They're caught between a rock and a hard place because, you know, obviously inflation has been exacerbated by the war in Ukraine, but the, but the oil price was going up anyway. And the reason it's going up is a decade of underinvestment and not just a decade of underinvestment, attacking the oil industry. Now, I look at what fossil fuels have made possible for humankind, and I know the whole global warming thing, but if you just look at we live longer lives, we live better lives, you know, we can talk to anyone in the world, we can... In, in, 1940, in 1910, you, could, you only paid tax at 8% of GDP, whereas today it's like 45 50%, and you could travel anywhere in the world without a passport. Great. How free were we? But you couldn't actually get anywhere in the world because we didn't have planes and we sort of barely had cars. We didn't have trains and so on in the way that we do today. Whereas today, you can literally go anywhere in the world. And we have fossil fuels to thank for that. We live longer. We can, if you don't want to travel the world, well, the rest of the world can be brought to your doorstep. And it's all because of fossil fuels. And it's a unique energy source and it's uniquely um, cheap and it's made wonderful things possible. And yet we should be celebrating it and investing it. And as we've consumed fossil fuels, as we progress, we've got better at consuming. So look at, you know, if you compare the way coal was burnt 50 or 100 years ago and all the pollution to the way that we burn fossil fuels today, you can't compare the two. Now, it's not perfect. I'm not pretending it is, but it is really good. And instead of doing that, we've attacked fossil fuels and you know, you, with the result that you're evil if you're in the fossil fuel industry and Shell and BP are all trying to rebrand themselves as sort of happy-go-lucky green companies. Well, the reality is if you want your green revolution, if you want solar power and lithium batteries and, and wind farms and all the rest of it, that is going to, to ha make that happen. You're going to have to burn a heck of a lot of fossil fuel to mine all the mm. metal in the first place and get it where it, where it has to be. So there's so much hypocrisy, there's so much inconsistency. But because of this anti this sort of anti-fossil fuel narrative. There's been no investment and the result is higher prices and it's it's the poorest who take the hit the hardest. It's also, by the way, the way that people in the third world or the developing world are going to escape their poverty. And it's like we're up in the treehouse and now we're pulling up the ladder and going, oh no, fossil fuels are bad before you've had a chance to climb up it. So Yeah, we want we want to do a bit of polluting. And the other big problem, Jeff, if if I if we can if we've got time have we got time? Or, oh, yeah, yeah, to... no, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, is like people think the reason houses are so expensive is because we don't build enough. If you look at population growth between 1997 and 2007, the, pop the population grew by 5%. The housing stock grew by 10%. If houses were simply a function of supply and demand and they were based on available cash in the local area, they would have fallen. 
over that period. They didn't. They went up 350%. And if you look at money supply growth over the same period, it also went up 350%. The reason house prices are so expensive is mortgage supply growth or money supply growth. The more money that gets borrowed, the more money comes available and the more house prices go up. Now, it's great if you own a house. But it's awful if you don't own a house because you're excluded and alienated. And, and the, the older you are, the more like you, you will have got into this pyramid scheme early. Whereas the younger you are, the harder it is. If we genuinely want house prices to be affordable, then you need to put up interest rates to levels that reflect actual inflation. And, and when I say inflation, I'm not just talking about the, the what the government, the CPI, the government measure, I mean actual money supply growth, in which case interest rates would be 10, 12, 15 percent, something like that. Now, if interest rates went to those kind of levels, the whole economy would come crashing down. But house prices would pretty quickly become affordable because there'd be a huge supply suddenly coming to market, be like 1989 to 94. But so, you know, what do you do if you're a policymaker? The house price crash of the um, early 90s made the Tories unelectable for half a generation because so many people lost their houses, keys through the door and all the rest of it. Mm. And everyone thinks when their house is going on value, oh, I'm getting rich, I'm getting rich. It's just, but it's really bad to the um, inequality gap. So my solution is is to, I just try to avoid the fiat money system because it's it's crooked and bent wherever I can and I try and save in gold and bitcoin and I wherever I can I try to escape the system but what do you do if you're a policymaker lord knows you're caught I guess you have to sort of rely on it but it, it the, the system is broken and no, this is the sort of stuff that policymakers should be talking about instead of whether Keir Starmer had an illegal cup of beer or not. This is the sort of arguments we need to be having and sensible discussions because it's a huge long term issue. But that's why, in a way, I think that they've spent so long in this area, because both parties are, you know, the Tories are in this situation where they have raised taxes. You know, some of them, uh, you know, the NI one has been offset for lower earners. Labour are talking about, well, look at the Tories raising taxes, but what they can't really take head on is like, well, you, you want to spend money. What the fuck are you going to do? You're going to be raising taxes for someone. I mean, when it comes to the Tories, what their USP has traditionally been or what alleged to have been, why aren't they cutting taxes? I mean, why aren't they slashing VAT, which is already a historically high rates? Why are they talking about corporation tax hikes in the near future? I mean, one of the things about leaving the EU is wanting to be competitive, and we're, we're taking corporation tax up exponentially in the next financial year. Is what's the re they, is it just incompetence or stupidity, or is there a deeper reason that the Tories aren't I, cutting taxes? I'd love to know what the reason is because the government's full of people who believe in low taxes individual responsibility, um, high levels of freedom, less government. You know, Boris Johnson used to write articles in The Telegraph week in, week out, advocating that kind of world. You've got people like Jacob Rees-Mogg, Rishi Sunak. They all come from that same sort of vaguely Thatcherite school of thought. And I believe if you actually took steps to do that and you talked honestly about it and you weren't so petrified of the media, then you would find it was actually extremely popular. But instead of turning ourselves into Singapore on Thames post-Brexit, we're just turning ourselves into Brussels on Thames. Not even Brussels on Thames, Leningrad on Thames. You know, so uh, it's a 
just a huge disappointment. And I don't know why it happens, but you always see somebody gets into power and then they don't do any of the things that you were hoping they would do. Then they step down from power and within a week of stepping down from power, Mervyn King did it, George Osborne did it. They all start making the same arguments. And you were like, you had the gig for 10 years and you yeah. did not do anything. Why did you not do anything when you had the chance? And the answer, when I ask people who know, why does this happen? The answer I get is Sir Humphrey. The Sir answer Humph is the civil the service. civil service, of course. And it just it's stops anything changing. And I don't know if the Treasury owns Rishi Sunak or Rishi Sunak owns the Treasury. But, you know, the last Chancellor we had who was committed to lower taxes was Nigel Lawson. And he removed a tax with every budget. And, and ever since Lawson, the tax code has just ballooned. George Osborne set up the Office of Tax Simplification and the tax code doubled under his tenure. It's nuts, and it's but isn't just... that one of the isn't that one of the weird misperceptions about the Conservatives since two thousand and ten? Is that obviously this hard right, economically hard right government, and yet they were one of the first ones that I've ever heard to talk about tax avoidance. I can remember in the early twenty tens there was chat about Starbucks, and I remember even I boycotted Starbucks for a week until I remember that they had the best tea bags, and that was the extent of my left wing flirtation. I was back there within a week, and there were less queues, you know. So that is individualism at its purest form, but then. You know that they've sort of uh, they've taken on um, dividend payments. Those aren't as generous as they were under New Labour. They've also, in terms of trying anyone trying to make any revenue from uh, having a second home, buy to let. I mean, if you, there's an absolute fucking litany of centre left things that they've done under various different leaders. And 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 the funny thing is, is that obviously they're embarrassed about that. But I wonder if there's a certain part of the electorate that if they were to point that out, it might do them some credit. Uh, you know, they're a social democrat party. They're called the Conservative Party, but they're the social democrat party. And they think they're really clever because they're owning the centre-left. And so they make it really... You know, they're outmanoeuvring Labour on the NHS and blah, blah, blah. And it's like... But it's a total betrayal of, of what people want. I mean, they do seem scared of the idea... Because the fear is, I suppose, if we were being fair to them, is under furlough, right, the government... And let's be honest, they're probably a bit too generous for that. I think the fact that the nation's savings went up by, what was it, fucking a billion pounds or something, you've got to go, oh, maybe we could have trimmed that. You know, maybe the first furlough offer was uh, pretty generous. But then are they worried, perhaps, is that if they cut savings, people are living more domestic, localised lives now, and people go, yep, fair enough, I'll put that in savings. Is that their fear that if you unleash personal spending power that people won't personally spend i just my view jeff is that that kind of economic management is none of government's business and they should stop trying to plan and and do all that kind of stuff just you know defend the nation police the nation uh, make sure that the, the uh, roads work and and if you must provide you, you know and then Everything else, just fuck off out of it, um, is my attitude. Uh, but they they just suffer from mass. They have to micromanage and plan everything, and half the time their plans just don't work. And and a lot of you can any pretty much any problem in the world at some point, if you trace it back to how it started, as, as often as not, it'll be some kind of misguided government action. Can I say, I mean, far be it from me to give you creative advice over your next song, but fuck off out of it. It has to be a contender. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's sort of a natural sister piece to the Brexit. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Was it 70 million fuck offs? Then fuck yeah. off out of it. 
I'm trying to cut down on the amount of num- how much I swear in my songs, but fuck off out of it. It's got a nice. I've written it down. It's got a nice ring to it. Okay, we've just got time here for one letter, and this is from. Well, let's just say the letter first. It says this is a short one actually. Keir Starmer's biggest crime is having a San Miguel with his curry. Discuss right, and it sounds very geezerish, but it's Tim. His name's Tim, and he's from Wellin Garden City. You could have just said Wellin. The fact you've added Garden City, like any masculinity that you accrued during <laughs> the first sentence, has gone. Uh, this is something that I tweeted about actually. Is that is uh, there's a lot of people. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of us that that politics and the stories are titillation in a way. I was holding my head in my hands going, who's having San Miguel with a curry? That is fucking not an accompaniment. It's got to be Cobra, maybe Kingfisher. There were some shouts for Tiger Beer. I mean, how can he? How dare he claim to be a man of the people and have a fucking San Miguel in his hand? Well, he should have had some hipster IPA. I mean, if it, oh my God. I mean, that's such a good point. If he'd have had a craft beer at that point, I think he would have walked already. Because, <laughs> I mean, if they've got any chance... Get my vote. Yeah, he'd get, we'd get your vote, you know, but like, if you've got to think in, in fucking uh, Wigan, a panel beater in Wigan, so he's the Labour leader, when punk IPA, and then then you found out, I mean, imagine if it found out that he had like a veggie curry dish, like like paneer. <laughs> <laughs> Something like, like, fucking do it, they don't even serve that in my fucking curry house, and he claims to represent us. Is Keir, uh, Keir Starmer's uh, biggest crime having a San Miguel with his curry? Look, it's not a good look for the Labour leader, but as Dom has added a superb dimension to this story, at least it wasn't a fucking craft beer with notes of toffee. Okay, uh, that is pretty much it for this week. Just remains to say thank you to my excellent guest, uh, Dominic Frisbee. Uh, mate, as ever, I mean, great views on everything and, and just so much, so many interesting insights on money and stuff. Uh, and if people want to further that, obviously they can follow you on all those main social media places, but Substack, that is the main place to go, right? Yeah, that's what I'm pushing at the moment. Frisbee.substack.com frisbee.site and just ignore the ones about uh, whether or not to fix your mortgages um, <laughs> sorry I had to get a third dig, dig in there uh, Dominic Frisbee thank you very much for being on What Most People Think my pleasure thanks for having me Jeff <laughs>